So here we go. Let's get your treatment started. It's cancer and you want it the hell out. You're about to meet two surgeons. Many years of experience between them. Miss Caroline Baker, who's an internationally trained breast surgeon. Mr David Deutscher, who operates on many different cancers in his hometown of Ballarat. Your surgeon is usually the first point of call for your treatment. But these days, don't get too worried if they're not planning to start operating straight away. You'll hear why soon, but things have changed a lot since the early days of cancer treatment. But firstly, I know there's one question you're probably too frightened to ask. Well, I'm here to ask that question for you. What exactly does cancer look like when you're operating on it? Are we talking a big black lump like we see in the movies? Okay, so when I operate, I actually don't want to see the cancer. So I'm doing a lumpectomy, so I want to take the cancer out with a margin of safety. I don't want to cut into it. Or I'm doing a mastectomy and the cancer's somewhere in the middle. So cancer, crab, you know from the Latin root, it's whitey grey usually and it's got spicules, like little tendrils or claws of the crab coming out into the surrounding tissue. It can be scurrus, which means scar-like, so contracted in the middle. Sometimes it has a lot of blood in it if it's got cystic spaces. So particular types of cancer can have bleeding surfaces, so it's got old blood. But in general terms, it's a whitey grey lump. Cancer is like the political equivalent of anarchy. In a democracy, there are certain rules and regulations that we all abide by, and so the society runs because we work within restrictions, which are the laws. There are biological laws whereby tissues abide by the rules, so a bowel cell stays a bowel cell, a lung cell stays a lung cell. But in cancer, it becomes anarchy, so that it doesn't adhere to the rules and regulations of its habitat, and it doesn't abide by tissue planes, it just infiltrates and burrows into spaces and ultimately takes over the body. The other thing that also throws people is there's so many different types Mm. of cancer. Like even in your specialist area, breast cancer, there's quite a few different kinds. Oh, there's a lot of different kinds. The reality is there's different ways of talking about breast cancer. It's better not to get caught too much with the nomenclature Mm. and to focus on there's a few key things that you need to know from your pathology. Now, All the advocacy groups will tell you you should have a copy of your own pathology and you should be able to reference it at any time. And I I always give it to my patients, but there'll be four or five pages and then there's a picture. And the picture tells a thousand words. Okay, so there's the lump in the middle. It tells you how big it is. So size is important. It tells you what grade it is. So the grade is the biological activity when you look under the microscope and that's divided into numbers. One is slow growing or well differentiated. That's the good one. Two is moderately differentiated, medium speed of growth. And three is high grade, faster growing, the not so good one. So size, grade. The other thing that we always look at is the lymph nodes. So there's a whole lot of palaver about lymph nodes, but lymph nodes are part of the body's defense system. So they help fight infection and cancer. And basically you want to know, is there any cancer in them or not? Predominantly, the reason for that is it's a marker of risk of metastasis, which is spread around the body. Okay, So if you have involvement of the nodes, 
there is a high statistical probability that you may have microscopic, at minimum, disease elsewhere in the system. So that means that you need to embark on more rigorous total body treatment, what we call adjuvant treatment, to stop the disease from coming back. When I first started out, a laddie might come with a breast lump, so there weren't good mammograms to pick up lumps that the patient couldn't feel, so they came with something they could feel, and you'd take them to the operation theatre, and they wouldn't know whether they'd wake up with or without their breast, because you'd take that tissue, have it snap frozen, and the pathologist would look at it, and if it was cancer, you'd remove the breast and take all the armpit glands. Well, now, of course, we can get biopsies before we go to theatre, and we can talk about breast-conserving surgery, and we can talk about not taking all the glands from the armpit or the axilla. But I'm assuming things have changed from when the first thing that was done was to operate to get the cancer out immediately. So there's a huge change that's accompanied with better what we call imaging or radiology. So from CT scans, the computer sophistication of CT scans now is extraordinary and evolving. And of course, we have MRI, and that's in particularly important in back passage or rectal cancer where we can look at how much it's how many nodes are involved or what nodes are involved and how it might expand into the pelvic structures because that sort of surgery is major surgery so we're better informed before we plan an operation. So what's the big change for breast cancer surgery? When I was training many many long centuries ago (laughs) we did what's called an auxiliary clearance on everyone so an auxiliary is the armpit and clearance means clear it out. So you'd just make a cut and you'd basically empty all the tissue that sits tucked in your armpit, which is predominantly fat, and it has lymph nodes studded through it. So that's a pretty blunt tool because you took all the lymph nodes out of everyone and only maybe about 40% of patients actually had any cancer in the lymph nodes. So the other 60% didn't have any cancer. You took away all their lymph nodes and then they suffered the chance of significant morbidity because of your operation. And the main thing for that was lymphedema. So lymphedema is swelling of part or all of your arm that occurs at some point after the surgery. Average time of onset's not straight away, it's at more three plus years. Lymphedema predisposes you to recurrent infections in your arm, which can be quite debilitating for a small number of people. So the sentinel node biopsy is a taking of the first draining lymph nodes, usually in the armpit. So identify those nodes by usually a dual technique of where you inject a bit of radioactive tracer into the breast, something called a lymphocytogram, and then you also inject a lymph-avid dye, a bright blue dye that travels in the lymph vessels from the breast up into the armpit. Then I do an operation where I'm looking for bright blue radioactive lymph nodes. And that may be one or two or three or four of the up to 40 that you have in your armpit. But I take those ones out. So then we check those and we look at whether they've got cancer in them or not. And that is then a reflection of the likelihood of any of the other lymph nodes having cancer. It's not a perfect test. There is what's called a false negative result, which means you take the sentinel nodes out. You're really happy. Yay, no cancer. And at some point down the track, cancer comes up in that armpit. So you've been falsely reassured that there's no cancer there, hence maybe not had as much systemic treatment as you would have had. But that false negative rate is reassuringly very low. When we first introduced the technique, it was quoted as somewhere between 2 and 7%. I can tell you that my false negative rate is 1%. 
So 99% of people are very happy with that operation and 1% aren't so happy. Except for having the blue nipple for a few months afterwards. <laughs> It'll go. It and it's, around. Yeah. I always say to people, so you get green urine and feces so they don't get a shock when <laughs> they go to the bathroom. You look like death warmed up after the operation. So your care is when they come to see you, don't get a shock, think you're dead. And then the other thing is you're like, you've got your own personal blue tattoo, like, you know, Boadicea of the Iceni, you know, they're in Britain times. In the past, surgery would have been your first point of call if you had suspected cancer. That's not always the case these days, is it? That is correct. We call it adjuvant chemotherapy or adjuvant therapy. That's additional therapy before surgery. And it's usually aimed at trying to downsize a tumour or make the tumour smaller and make our surgery more effective. Mm. A very large breast cancer, for instance, we may be able to downsize that so you can conserve the breast. In the back passage, downsize it so we can take the tumour out and reconnect the bowel so you don't have to have a permanent stoma or colostomy. So how does cancer move from its original site and start to really cause damage? When you have cancer, it's either a primary or a secondary. So primary means that when you find it is in the tissue of origin. So we know that primary breast cancer is normal breast cells that have gone pear-shaped and they've stopped responding to the normal body controls that regulate how they divide and grow. So they're rogue elements. A secondary is a lump that has turned up somewhere else having started in tissue of the primary. Okay, All cancers can have secondaries. It's the likelihood of the secondary happening that is your prognosis. If you have a teeny tiny, slow-growing, not-in-the-lymph-nodes breast cancer, it is highly unlikely to metastasize. So that's the sort of cancer that's frequently picked through breast screen. So breast screen can offer you a curative experience. There are a lot of factors in the inherent nature of the cancer that affect its likelihood to metastasize. So we talked about grade before. So the other things that are part of it are the hormone receptors. We test routinely on breast cancers the ER, which is the estrogen receptor, and the PR, which is the progesterone receptor. So estrogen and progesterone, two female hormones made in the ovaries when you're premenopausal, still made in other tissues when you're postmenopausal, so you have a little bit. And we know that cancers are strongly hormone responsive if they have those receptors present. So we measure the presence or absence of those receptors and also how many cells have them, so a percentage, and how strongly those receptors seem to be present. You get a complicated sort of little sum at the end. So if you have an ER, estrogen receptor positive cancer, it can be 100%. So that means all the cells have the estrogen receptor and three plus, very strongly present. So what that means is... You feed that cancer buckets of estrogen, aka hormone replacement, and that will stimulate cancer growth. You target that feature of the cancer with a hormone blocker, an anti-hormone. The common ones we use are tamoxifen, anastrozole, letrozole, and exemestane, and their various incarnations with trade names. That will work to damp down any growth of cancer, both in the primary site and in any possible secondary sites. And there's one other marker that we routinely test called the HER2, so that's an oncogene. That is part of the cancer's genetic profile, and we have a targeted 
antibody therapy for that marker. So that's immune therapy for breast cancer. Is immune therapy the golden grail for cancer treatments? I mean, are you looking at finding an immune receptor for every single type of cancer? There's an enormous amount of research being done at the molecular pathways that drive the growth and the metastasis of breast cancer cells. Very exciting area. So in order to treat or use that information, you have to map out the pathway and then create a molecule that will block a particular integral part of the pathway and hence cause the whole thing to fall over and the cancer can't grow. Yeah. So that's a subject of a lot of research at present. And that's what most cancer research is kind of heading towards or it seems oh, to be your best So there's, that's bullish. the biological imperative. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's interest in other things such as how to reduce the risk of metastasis as time goes on. So there's been a lot of research and interest recently in looking at exercise and at BMI. And there's been quite a lot of longitudinal studies that have been done that show that if you can exercise significantly four or five times a week and keep your BMI in the 20s, that you will reduce your risk of breast cancer recurrence by up to 10%. That's a big number. That's often bigger than the advantages that will be offered by chemotherapy for particular cancers. So right now, how do you surgeons work out what's the best route for treating someone's cancer? Best practice is based on all the trials and all the women and men who have given themselves permission to be on trials to get the answers that we now have. And the answers are still incomplete. So we believe that the Western model and the Western scientific approach to cancer and survival gives patients the best chance. Having surgery is seen by new patients as one of the biggest hurdles to get through treatment. But in real life, surgery is potentially your easiest round of treatment. I suppose the angst associated with surgery is just at the end of that diagnostic workup where people get very wound up about all the things that are happening and the stuff that they have to go through and the biopsies and the tests and usually people have got their head whirring and then they fall over the line to have an operation. So realistically, a lumpectomy and a sentinel node biopsy is simple surgery. It's less than an hour. It's home either the same day or the next morning. It is pretty pain-free. Panadol will usually get people through it and a good bra. And it's pretty small. It's superficial. Those girls that need a mastectomy and elect for a reconstruction, that surgery is more complex, is a longer stay in hospital and is usually a four to six week before they're feeling anywhere like they're vaguely normal. You've just found out you've got cancer. People must want it out very quickly. I have lots of people that say, I'll hop up on the table now, can you do it? Yeah. Realistically, that's a bad idea from a number of levels. The first thing, it's not medically necessary. Breast cancer isn't like a one millimetre size and a 10 centimetre size in a week. Things do not change that quickly. It may, you may perceive it to be the case, but actually it's a relatively slow growing cancer in the greater scheme of things. So one, it's not necessary. Two, it feeds into the whole anxiety and angst of everything. In hindsight, people who take a little bit of time to become accustomed to the diagnosis, to sort out their family, their children, their work, so that they can put that over on the side, on that top shelf, and forget about that while they then deal with their cancer. They will appreciate that they've spent a little bit of time doing that. Then the third reason for not to rush is you want to feel like you have some ownership in this. 
You've got a little bit of control. Okay, I understand what she told me. Hmm, I've got some things to think about. Do I understand? Do I follow? Is her train of thought clear about what she's recommending to me? And if it's not, then the right time to get a second opinion is before anything's happened. So people should feel, try and feel empowered. It's a decision that needs to be made with a bit of time and thought. We've gone from a period of time, I mentioned my younger days when a laddie would come and we'd, if they had a breast lump, and we'd try and put them on the next list, which may be tomorrow or the same week, and they didn't know whether they're going to wake up with or without their breast. And the intention of that was not harshness. It was actually the hope that we were doing the best for them. Now we understand that part of the journey is coming to grips with what might happen, of which surgery is only one part. And whilst it may be an anxious wait to look at so many options, I often counsel patients and their families to say, look, this is part of the journey where you gain confidence to know that the people are going to look after you will do that, and then you're making the right decisions so that in the future you can deal with that better. That requires perhaps counselling, and maybe that's counselling from professional counsellors or time with your surgeon or your oncologist and certainly with your family. So again, if somebody comes to me with, it's not usually with a biopsy, they may have had one, but they come to us with a lump or a suspected abnormality on an x-ray, like a breast or something in the bowel, I always advocate that they bring as many of the family as they want and that they write notes and you need time to assimilate this challenging news. It is you, it's happening to you, and I'm pleased to say that breast cancer and the ladies that unfortunately suffer from it, I think are at the forefront of being able to control their destiny a bit. And that's due to all the good work of the women that have gone before, in particular someone like Lynn Swinburne, the ex-CEO of BCNA, who didn't feel like her journey at the beginning was how it should have been and did something about it. Cancer is a condition, not a sentence. And there are three things. You've got three C's. You've got your cancer, we aim to cure, sometimes we can't, but whatever happens will take care of you. And they go out remembering those three C paradigms. We've asked people what they wish they'd known before they had cancer. Like, what, what is it they wish they'd known? And I can remember after surgery for me and you said, I think we're going to have to do chemotherapy. I can remember going, what? What? This you never said and luckily for you my sister was standing there and she said no no she did she did say that it was a possibility what I is definitely it that you wish people <laughs> I swear <laughs> on a second because one of the things that yeah. we do that's good these days yeah. is that on the core biopsy so that's the diagnostic biopsy we get to know a bit about what's called the phenotype of the cancer so the receptors the grade so when I have a person sitting across from me I know their age I know how big the cancer is I know what type it is so I have a fair idea at the beginning what their pathway is going to be. So to be personal, your cancer was what's called a triple negative breast cancer, so ER, PR and HER2 negative. So absolutely, 100%, I knew you would need chemotherapy. I knew that. I told you that. I wrote it down <laughs> on the piece not. of paper. I'm sure you I wrote write. it down <laughs> on the piece of paper and I gave you the cop I kept a copy of the piece of paper because people don't remember. No. But is that I mean That's is, that normal. must be so frustrating for you, isn't no, but it? it? No, it's not if I'm up to seven times and I'm telling them, then it's frustrating. <laughs> but I expect to have the same conversations at least two or three times. I factor that in. I make sure we have the appointments to discuss it. We write everything down. We give the patient the copy of everything that's been written down. 
We encourage another set of ears to come along to the consultation so that someone like her sister can pipe up and say, yes, she did, because she was there. And most of us are more than happy to have family come along, and, and all age groups, from the young and the old, because I feel much more comfortable looking after somebody if I've met their family and they've met me. And when the, when the going gets tough, then I know who the people are. I can ring them up and say we've got a tough spot or we've got a successful spot. But equally, the family can say, oh, mum, dad, or brother, sister, what have you, that's not what he meant or that's what he said, etc., etc. So it's, it's a better, well-rounded conversation. It's really important to have good quality written information, not random Google breast cancer. I would thoroughly encourage that everyone who's diagnosed with breast cancer insist that they get a copy of the My Journey kit distributed by the BCNA. What is it that you wish people knew? I wish people knew that the vast majority of people wouldn't, weren't going to die from breast cancer. It's very hard, but I try and upsell breast cancer at the beginning. <laughs> I say, I know you've been diagnosed with cancer. I understand it's a terribly scary word. I get it. I think there's much more awareness of the patient journey and the quality of the journey, and that comes into survivorship space as well. There's much more work being done in that area. And it's great that we can do work in that area because people are surviving better and longer, but it creates its own, its own challenges. Sometimes it's a question of who follows you up. Is it your surgeon? Is it your oncologist? Is it a combination? It's and probably everybody if it's yeah. a serious cancer. Yes. And that sort of part of your safety net is that there are so many layers of people checking you out. Supportive care, I think, is something that's had a, a burgeoning focus in the last five to ten years. What that means is you have your cancer, you have your chemo, you have your radio and you pop out the other end and you've been under the pump and everyone's been talking to you and you've been in and out and feeling like you're getting lots of medical attention. Then it's done and people sit back on their heels and they go, well, what happens now? I don't feel better. I'm not sure that I really feel that it's gone away. What happens in my life now? So that's a big void and there's been quite a lot of attention paid to redeveloping belief in self that they're going to move forward, to re-establish financial stability and capacity because you've been impacted by cancer, to understand that psychological stress can be lasting and to understand that breast cancer occurs in a woman who's already maybe had a lot of psychological stress and the cancer's the tipping point. So I routinely suggest psychological support to everyone who's newly diagnosed. It doesn't mean you're crazy. It means let's give you some additional skills to help you get through things. You must hear a lot of women go, I haven't got time for this. Yes. So the message to that lady is make time. Mm. Make time for yourself. Give yourself permission to focus on yourself. As a cancer sufferer or person with cancer, if you not be the victim or the person with the condition, but the person with potential cure and the person who can continue to contribute to the family so that that's a tough journey. Gain support from family, friends and professionals, but also that you're in control and you are contributing. People are, and your friends are learning from you. It is a scary journey. It's an uncertain journey. And there is an audience from the side who are watching how we as the profession help you, but also as patients, how you cope or don't cope. And it's okay not to cope. It's okay to spin out because then you rely on your friends to bring you back. And then together that we become a community of carers and a, a, a community of compassionate carers. You must have seen people really grow and change. Dare I even say it, their life 
gets a little better because they had cancer. It helps patients, their families, sift through the white noise of our modern hypermanic <laughs> consumerist society as to what is important. It's almost trite to say that it is relationship and it is quality of life, those sorts of things. But it is true. Life's full of the people who have made it to the top and then realise that, well, was it the correct ladder I was up? And the view from the top is not necessarily more important, more important or better than the view from the so-called bottom. But it is the relationships and the meaning we get from that. So that then people see perspective, what's important, that anger is not important or being frustrated, but kindness and compassion and care, love, are the real things we all live for. While surgery is often the first round of treatment for your cancer, there's one really good thing you can acknowledge once it's over and done with. You're officially classed as a cancer survivor. Welcome to the team. You'll be joining many thousands of people who've gone before, pioneered the treatments, been guinea pigs in drug trials. But our numbers are growing. We're living much longer. The statistics were against us, but they're not so much anymore. Don't listen to the rumours or do too much doctor googling. There's a lot of expertise and many, many years of experience behind the treatments that you're just about to undertake. We've got some more podcasts up our sleeve for you, talking about some of the treatments you might undergo. So stay strong and welcome to the team of Cancer Survivors. I have a brain tumour. I'm three years past my breast cancer diagnosis. As you or someone you know joins the ranks of cancer survivors. We have to recognise that the experience is different for everyone. One thing that I wish I knew when I got my diagnosis was that, you know, I was going to survive. You start to hear figures and the oncologists start talking about treatment plans and you look at your young children and you think, am I going to be there? Am I going to survive this to live and see them start school and to go on with their lives? So, you know, I really wish that I could look ahead and see, yeah, here I am, I'm alive and thriving and got through it and... Here I am. Just how much it actually impacts your entire life. Like, I'm four and a half years and I'm still not back to where I was. And I had, I was pregnant at the time when they diagnosed me and suddenly my life changed completely. And then everybody expects you to go back once you've had your first lot of surgery and you don't. You're completely different and no one tells you that. They want you to go and you should be back doing everything and you've got kids, but no one's there to help you and things like that especially I've got four young kids and all of a sudden after the you come home from hospital you'll be fine and yeah you're not holding my little girl for the first time after because she was six weeks old when I had my first surgery and that's the only thing that got me through because you have to do it like you can't turn around and say no I'm not going to do it because you've got little people looking after you look they can't do anything they're six weeks old so you have to say yes you don't get a choice uh, prostate cancer. I didn't go to doctors a lot. My mate said to me, oh, you should go and have a checkup," and uh, had some tests done. They said to me, your sugar's all right, your cholesterol's all right, but you've got PSA is up a bit. And I said, well, what's that? So they, they told me all about this prostate then, and I'd never heard anything about it. He, he said, uh, we took six tests, Five were clear and one had specks of cancer. 
And I said, what happens now? He says, well, we'll take it out and put you on Viagra. I said, no, you won't. So I uh, turned around and came home and uh, he wanted to take it out too, but I said, no, there's got to be an alternative. I'll look into it first, you know, and, and see what it's all about. So we went on the uh, test and, and, and watch scheme. I fit what they call it, yeah. Something like the test and watch. Yeah, so I've been on that for uh, just on 19 years. My, my PSA goes up and down, up and down all the time. It turned 82 the other day. They did about five biopsies before they found anything and having a biopsy without uh, anaesthetic is lovely. Uh, in the days before they now got the newfangled machine. The main thing I think about the whole lot of it is a lot of luck. My first biopsy said was non-aggressive and was going to die something else first. <laughs> then two years later I've ended up with a bloody uh, aggressive cancer. <laughs> I asked a specialist about it and he says, oh it happens. <laughs> I wasn't a silly old bugger that wouldn't go to the doctor, but I still ended up with an aggressive cancer. And if you wanted to know more about our cancer experts... I am Miss Carolyn Baker, FRACS. I'm Director of Breast Surgery at St Vincent's Public Hospital in Melbourne and I'm a Director of Victorian Breast and Oncology Care in my private practice in East Melbourne. And in Ballarat, Mr Deutscher. I'm just happy to be called David Deutscher on the clinical... Director of the Integrated Cancer Service, and I work as a surgeon in St John's and the Base Hospital. This podcast was made possible with thanks to the Grampians Integrated Cancer Service and the Health Issues Centre, consumer voices for better healthcare. Oh, and I'm a cancer survivor too. I'm Penny Johnston, and I hope you found this Cancer Survivor Guide helpful.